it clearly. But in Hebrew and also in Greek, um, when we say you in English, um, again, we're looking at Nahum chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. We're finishing up the section of Nahum in a nutshell, okay, part 2. Last week, we saw the bad news. Uh, but now we see the, uh, we're going to be focusing on the good news. And the good news is addressed specifically to, towards those in Judah. Okay, towards those in Judah. Um, in looking at this, um, I mentioned, like I just mentioned earlier, um, in English, when we say you, things are not very clear. For instance, if I say you, sometimes one of my daughters look up and sometimes my daughter does not because they're thinking, Who, who's that talking about? Okay, but in Hebrew, the you could be, uh, you could see in Hebrew the way it's ending shows it's addressed towards female or towards male. Okay, English is not clear. Does that make sense? And also in Hebrew, you can see it's addressed towards not just only female or male, but it also could be addressed to singular one or multiple. Okay, so in light of this is where I think uh, I think this is a good example. Verse nine to fifteen. When you first read it, it might seem like what is this? Ta- who's this you? Okay, but in Hebrew, it we see there's actually four different. Um, address that's going on here. Okay, that's not the clue. So that's why I divide into four parts. And we've looked at last week the Assyrians. It, though it looked like we're skipping around, um, last week we've looked at verses nine to ten, which I thought was the first address towards Syria. Then we looked at the second address to Syria, which I believe is in verses fourteen. Okay, so tonight we're going to be looking at uh, what I believe is the first address towards Judah, which is actually in verses eleven to thirteen. And the second address to Judah, which is in verses 15. Now, the reason why I split it up this way is this. Um, just to let you guys know, know the pronoun, uh, the, with the you, uh, the Y or you. In verses 9 to 10, it's actually masculine plural. Okay? So if I were to translate this in a New American Southern Bible instead of a New American Standard Bible, I would have this, whatever you all devise against the Lord. Okay? And you get the idea in verses, uh, you know, 9 and 10. So this is masculine plural. I take this as actually, as I argued last week, this is actually addressing the people in Nineveh, okay? Um, the people in Nineveh. Then there's a switch of pronoun, okay? This is a switch of pronoun. In verses 11 to 13, this pronoun suddenly with the you, for instance, if you look at verses 11, it says, from you have gone out one. This you, suddenly there's a transition. This is no longer masculine plural. Is actually feminine singular, okay? Feminine singular. I'll address why I think that is referring to Judah in a little bit, and then I'm just giving the background, like why am I dividing this, or, or is this Jimmy just went nuts, just dividing it for no reason, just to make it long, right? And then if you look at verses 14, it's actually masculine singular, okay? The you in verses 14, where it says the Lord has issued command concerning you, it's suddenly masculine singular. I actually think in light of what first 14 is talking about, this is addressing the king of Nineveh, okay? Uh, which we've looked at last week in verse 14. And in 15, verse 15 again, it suddenly goes back to talk about the you here is feminine singular. When it says celebrate your feasts, pay your vows, this here is now feminine singular, which I think is referencing a second message for Judah. And Okay. So in light of this, we're going to be looking at the first and second address of Judah. That means we're looking at verse 11 to 13 and verse 15. So like I said earlier, I usually preach verse by verse, but the reason why I've done this is because last week I want to begin with the bad news Nahum gives. And in light of the bad news, the other side of the coin is there's good news. Um, Because Nineveh will be destroyed, that has implication for what? 
for as a good news for Judah. Okay, and by the way, like um, as you guys have even so beautifully mentioned um, in various weeks, I think Nahum and Jonah should go together. Uh, right? If you remember Jonah, at first, if you just do not read the book of Nahum, if you just only read Jonah, you might just think, "Wow, Jonah is evil." He does not love people, which is true. That's a problem. But Nahum kind of gives a bit more context that who is this Nineveh? Who are these Ninevites? Who are these Assyrians that we are talking about? They're people that have oppressed people. They're very violent. And of course, there's extra biblical stuff, historical stuff. And in this address, we see that when they are destroyed, it's also even a blessing for who? For Judah, which means that when we look at the message of when we look at the message of Jonah, the primary purpose is not just only to love other people and love your enemies, though that is true. But the primary thing is to obey God, even when you don't understand, even if it's towards people that you would not love naturally, you are still to obey what God says. I think that's the primary purpose of Jonah. Okay, So with the bad news that we've laid the foundation, now there's good news. And the good news is directly related to destruction of Syria means Judah will benefit from this, okay? So let's look at the first address to Judah. Uh, and we're going to look at uh, this first address to Judah is in verses 11 to 13, okay? Verses 11 to 13. Um, verses 11 to 13. Could I have, as uh, as readers, is it possible I have Mrs. Burton, you read verse 11? And then uh, Manny, read verse 12? And then Leanne, could you read verse 13? so much okay in reading this passage i think this is actually addressed towards well first and foremost who is this talking i think while 11 doesn't say who's talking verse 12 i think it makes it clear who's talking because it says thus says for this is what the lord says so this is yahweh or the god of the bible that's speaking which then we need go to the next question um who is this addressing now like i said earlier i believe this is judah um, but why do I believe it's Judah? Um, first and foremost, in the in the changing of the gender from, like I said earlier, verses 9 to 10 is masculine plural, which these people are being destroyed. Now in verses 11 to 13, there's a transition to feminine, okay, singular, which sets it apart that this is not the Assyrian citizens or Assyrian army or soldiers, okay? Um, so that's number one, one of the reasons. The second is also, I think, feminine is often used to describe cities and also countries, which Judah would fit in. But of course, you might ask the question, could this be Nineveh? I actually think later on when we go through the rest of Nahum, uh, Nineveh will be addressed as feminine singular. And the context is very clear. It's talking about this. But the other reason why I believe that is because it's this feminine singular um, is later on also mentioned again in verse 15, that feminine singular. And if you look at verse 15, it actually mentions what? It actually names this feminine singular after your feast, all those your 
um, you, you know, all these things, it says what? Judah, okay? So it's in light of verse 15 saying Judah that we, I think we go back to say this is definitely Judah. And one of the other reasons to fortify, to reinforce this idea is Judah, for, not only because of verse 15, is because verse 15, it's towards Judah and notice there's celebration, right? It's celebration, verse 15. It's about deliverance. It's God's deliverance. And verses 11 to 13 is also the same topic. The topic of what? God's deliverance for this feminine singular. So that's for me a strong reason why I do take this as referencing Judah, the nation of Judah. Okay, let me stop at this point. Is that clear? Like at least my reasoning why I take that as Judah? Okay. Okay, so in light of verse 11 and 13, this is addressed, and this is, I, I actually think from now on, this is to me, it's going to be in the back of my mind, as an example of why biblical language is important. Now, let me make this very clear. Um, I think the Bible in English, God's Word is so powerful, even if there's a, if even there's someone that special needs would never ever be able to learn Greek and Hebrew, God, praise God, God's Word is still translated and will still do its work, but at the same time, there's an instance when sometimes we want to go into details, knowing the original language is helpful. Otherwise, at least for me, when I first read this preparing, I was just all confused. I was like, well, who's all this you and all these things? Then I remember, oh yeah, I read a Bible commentary about a year and a half ago that was clarifying all this. And I'm reminded again, okay, uh, of the pronouns with that. So in light of this, what is verse 9 and 10 trying to tell us? Its main message is that it predicts the Assyrian destruction and that their destruction means Judah's affliction will end, okay? Um, you have to understand that Assyria is, in some ways, maybe I think the closest analogy we could think about in our day and age is, um, is like Hitler, okay, in, 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 in Europe. The name of the country of Germany, or Berlin, where the capital of Germany, would have struck fear all over what? All over continental Europe, okay? Um, whether in the east side or in the west, okay? Or maybe another analogy, maybe more closer is, if you guys remember um, a few years ago, the Islamic State suddenly grew so big and invading everywhere. And that would seem like, whoa, that is so crazy. And, and saying that, even or in, in Arabic, the acronym for that is DASH, right? Um, people hear that and that would have been a bad thing, right? They would have had certain things of fear. So when you hear it gets destroyed, you know in light of that destruction is there will be liberation for people from oppression. So it's in this light that that's what it's trying to give us. The good news out of that bad news that God will judge Nineveh for their sin is the good news that for those who are his people, God is going to be what? Caring for them. And here God's going to liberate and that's good news for them. How I divide this up is verses 11, in talking, God addressing Nineveh, he gives an historical example that they themselves know that God ha is, he's, is he capable to rescue um, Judah from the hands and, and, and jaws of the Assyrians? I would say the answer is yes. Okay. So in verse 11, he gives an historical instance and a historical example. And then later in verses 12 and 13, he proclaims certain three different promises towards Judah. Okay, So he begins first with a pass, with an historical example that God, could he rescue Judah from the Assyrians? Yes, there, he's going to talk about a very specific historical instance that when, he, when that was written, it's in the past. 
And then in light of that, afterward, he makes promises, three promises for the future in verses 12 to 13. Okay, so looking at verses 11, this is what it says. From you has gone out one who's plotted against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Okay, um, there's here it mentions there's actually someone who has plotted against the Lord that that even went to Judah. They went to Judah so close to such a point that it says this one was actually going to be removed by God from them. Okay. So there's so many questions in light of verses 11, okay? But let's go a little bit slower. I think in describing this individual that God is punishing, notice this individual, one of the things that says what he's like, his characteristics is, you, do you see that phrase, plotted evil against the Lord? Does any of your other versions say anything different in, in how it says, plotted evil against the Lord? No. Okay, any of your versions say conspire or plotted or, or, or. It just says plot in the present tense. Okay, okay. Anyone else? Uh, version say anything else? Conspired? Any version says conspire? Just curious, real quick. Okay, I bring this up as a say from last week. If you guys remember, we've talked about how one of the sins of the Syrian is that they purposely planned against God. If you look back with me in verses nine, it's actually using the same verb. Okay, if you look with me in Nahum chapter 1, verse 9, in verses 9, in talking about the Assyrians, it says, Whatever you devise against the Lord, if you remember last week, just for those that were here, I asked you guys different things. Like in the ASB, it says devise, but some of your version, I think Chris mentioned, ESV says conspire, some of the version says plotted. In Hebrew, is actually the same verb. Of course, it's a feminine singular. Um, uh, or, you know, the, the ending looks a little different because of the gender stuff, right? And, and number. But if you look back with me in verses 11, here's, it's interesting. The Syrians were plotting, but it wasn't just they were plotting. There's someone also as well that's plotting that was near Judah, or perhaps even some would say within Judah also as well. Because if you look at verses 11, from you, it's among your midst, have gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord. Okay. And this individual is actually described as a counselor. And it's giving not a good advice, but a negative advice, okay? Um, so, and then it also says, this one plotted evil, okay? Verse 9 earlier says, devise against the Lord, but now it's saying evil. The Hebrew word for evil is raw, which actually means doing something that's unacceptable action. Doing an unacceptable action, okay? Is what wicked mean, okay? Um and then the second word, when it says um, wicked counselor, it's actually a different, uh, or, or, or correction, the, the first word evil is, is that unacceptable action. And when it's interesting, the next word, when the last part was says a wicked counselor, that word wicked, I think in some versions says worthless. Um, but I think it, worthless is probably not the best way to describe it because this is a very strong term um, to describe evil. I would translate this as heinous. Okay, I would actually train this as a heinous counselor. This is, in other words, is really morally repulsive. Okay, um, so I'm going to describe this individual before we ask who is this guy that's being described. Okay, so when in describing this, just to get you a little flavor, when it says a wicked counselor, what kind of um, in Hebrew is actually Bilal? Okay, Bilal. Um, where do we uh, see this term to describe how evil something is? Turn with me real quick. To First Kings chapter twenty-one, verse ten. I know I have little ears listening in my home, 
but we're going to try to keep this rated G for godliness as much as possible. But you're going to see just what kind of individuals will be called this term in Hebrew, Bala, okay? If you guys could turn with me real quick to 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 10. Um, I prefer an adult to read for tonight with this verse, okay? Um, Eric, would you be able to read verse 10? Eric, would you be able to read verse 10? And Chris, would you be able to read in verse 13? Again, 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 10, and also verse 13. Are you unmuted or if you're still finding the passage? I, I have to uh, find the passage. Okay, sorry. First Kings. Uh, First Kings 21.10. Yes, uh-huh. So what we see here in verses 10 is, um, before we have James read, I'm sorry. Verses 10, what we see here is these are men who what are going against God, okay? Um, they're involved with stealing, okay, um, with things. And also as well, um, there is even, you know, um, they're, they're not honoring God, okay? They're not honoring God and it's described as what? That when it's describing them, that word worthless is actually Bala, okay? Bala, which I think is reference heinous. Um, James, would you be able to read verse 13? Uh, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him, and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Okay, yeah. So what is going on here is notice that they're they're lying, right? Okay. That they're even making this accusation in court, right, in, in a legal context, and and they're saying like, you know what, this person um, is is bad. So there's evil that's being done. Okay, there's a plot, and it's heinous to get someone to be killed. Okay, so in this light, we see here that this is a wicked thing. Okay, um, so I actually translate that as heinous, not so much as worthless. And by the way, Balad, do you, do you guys know that word? Ever heard the word Bala in the New Testament? I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. But if you guys remember in 2 Corinthians 6, okay, if you guys could turn there real quick with me, 2 Corinthians 6, there's actually a transliteration. What I mean by transliteration is um, the writer, even though it's another language, they make it sound the same. Does that make sense? Kind of like how we say chow fun noodle, or uh, it's, you know, you have the Chinese word, you're just saying it. In, in another language. If you look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, this is where it says, Or what harmony has Christ with Bilal? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? It's saying basically it's a name of one of the 
um, fallen angels, okay? Right. You guys know how even Satan, uh, Satan in Hebrew literally means accuser, okay? So you could have human accusers, like false accusation, but that also becomes a title for the devil, okay? The devil also as well. So I think what Bilal, the word heinous, is so bad that even later on, one of the demons would even be, that we know from Jewish like understanding of demonology, is this is so terrible, they call him literally heinous, right? Like how some is called legion, you know, all that kind of thing, uh, or at least demon-possessed man. Here we see one of the other names, okay? So this word here, going back on with me, if you guys could turn back with me to Nahum, whoever this individual is that is among them, we ask the question. We see his description. He's plotting against the Lord, okay? He's, he's not only plotting against the Lord, but in light of, I would also say in light of the, were plotted against the Lord. Um, it seems so much like the, what the Assyrians are doing. Perhaps they're even conspiring together, a conspiracy together against God. And on top of that, it's described as a wicked counselor. It's not just only giving advice that happened to be bad, okay? There's a difference between making a mistake. For instance, you might have a financial counselor telling you what to invest for your stock portfolio. That person might not purposely try to mess you up. That might be a bad counselor, but it's different between someone that intentionally wants to ruin someone, where you would say, no, that's heinous, that you're purposely trying to make off as mad off with a lot of money with someone else, okay? You feel me? So there's a difference with that, okay? So we go back here, we ask then the question, who is this individual talking about? And I actually think we actually do know what he's talking about, what Nahum is talking about. I think this is actually, um, I know Mrs. Burton, when she read her Amplified Version, said this might be Sennacherib. My personal view, and there's some commentaries that think it is Sennacherib. Sennacherib is one of the um, Assyrian king that's mentioned outside the Bible and also within the Bible. My personal view, I actually do not think this is Sennacherib, but it was when Sennacherib was king. I actually think it's referencing to a man named Rab, Rab Shakha. Okay? Rab Shakha. Okay, you know this? Yeah, yeah, the one that's taunting. Yeah, Judah. Yeah, don't listen to Hezekiah. Exactly. Okay. No, that's very good. Nancy, you know. Okay. Um, that's very good. Seems that Mrs. Burton knows too. Okay. I can't pronounce that name to save my life. I actually think it is actually referencing him because you know the story of Rabshakeh confronting, confronting Judah to say, "Hey, don't trust in God. Just surrender to us." That's actually such an important point in biblical history that this was not just only recorded in one place in the Bible. This is actually not even recorded a two, a two place in the Bible. This is actually recorded in three different instances. How many instances? Three. Okay. If you guys could turn real quick with me to 2 Kings 18 to 19. 2 Kings 18 to 19. Again, we're not going to read the whole thing, but we're just going to do a flyby um, just to show you. Um, Caleb, I know you just joined us. We're looking at Nahum chapter 1 verse 11 of saying, so we're looking at now God's good news that Judah, you'll be delivered. But in beginning, God telling them the good news that, yeah, Assyria will be destroyed means you will be delivered from oppression. But God reminds them that he has a power to take care of Nineveh. How? Oh, correction, of uh, Judah. How? And he reminds them of a historical moment that was already passed in their time history when God actually delivered them. When God even removed a bad counselor near with them. So if you guys could look with me real quick to 2 Kings uh, 18 and 19. 
when you get to 2 Kings 18 and 19. What we see in 2 Kings 18 and 19 is um, you see that it's uh, mentioned uh, that the king, Hezekiah, uh, was mentioned, right? Oh, man, where do I find the name? Um, then Hezekiah, you know, sent to verses 14 uh, to the king of Lachish and said there's a message, right? Um, oh, actually, I know. Let me pull out verses my. Okay, verses, uh, there's actually several references, okay? Look at verses 17. Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan, Rabsaris, and Rabshek uh, from Lachish. King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they went up, they came and stood out by the conduit of the upper pole, which is on the road of the fuller's field, okay? And in verse 19, Rabbeksha said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, this is... What the great king, the king of Assyria says, what is the confidence that you now have? Okay, and then you see what you go on is actually he's confronting them. And remember what we even saw last week. He's saying like, hey, all these gods in all, all these other countries, they couldn't protect from Sennacherib, king of Assyria. What makes you think your God will be able to protect you? In other words, this is actually not just a political war no more. Behind the political is something spiritual. There's a spiritual confrontation. It's a battle of the gods, if you will. Okay, what's going on here? It goes on to 18 verse 27, 28, 37, and even chapter 19 verse 4. This name, Rabbeksha, keep on being mentioned more than even the other names of advisors that is sent from very likely um, cupbearers that were advising, giving message on behalf of the king. Okay, so in fact, this is not just only recorded here. If you guys could turn with me real quick to... Um, to Second Chronicles, uh, to Second, oh, sorry, I lost my place. Second Chronicles thirty-two. Okay, Second. So if you're in Kings, you turn the next book over is First Chronicles, then Second Chronicles. Okay, Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two. Okay, Second Chronicles thirty-two. When you turn there, you're gonna see the same thing again. We're gonna just do a flyby. The, while the individuals are not named, this is the recording of the same event where Sennacherib tries to invade Judah. Okay? With all these things, again, same thing. Uh, he sends in verses 9, messengers, okay? Messengers uh, to Jerusalem, saying, seizing him. And notice the message is what? Look at verses 10. On uh, what are you trusting that you are remaining in Jerusalem under si siege? Same kind of message saying, look at verse 11. Is not Hezekiah... Um, misleading you to give yourself over to die by hunger and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hands of the kings of Assyria. So do you see there's a mockery against God? It's a conspiracy against God, okay, uh, with this. So in light of this, I actually don't think necessarily it is Sennacherib. I think it is Sennacherib behind all this, but I actually think this is referencing to the one that was sent to do the work of Sennacherib. This Rabbeksha guy. While he's not mentioned in 2 Chronicles 32, when you turn with me to Isaiah, again, notice there's three different instances. There's a total of five chapters he's mentioned in Scripture. Um, for the next one, turn with me to Isaiah 36 and 37. Okay, again, it's going to be a quick flyby. If you look with me in Isaiah 36, you'll see his name mentioned of Rabshaka in verses 2, verses 4. Verses 11, 12, 13, 
22, and in the next chapter, 37, verse 4. Um, even with verse 8 onwards, okay? What, why am I bringing all this? What's the significance of all this? Is to say, this guy, Rebeksha, is going in the midst, even in Jerusalem, to say, Hey, surrender. Your God cannot do anything. Our king is even stronger than your God, okay? Um, so in light of this, I think what it's saying here is, if you remember, when they plotted against God, when they did all those mockery, if you guys could turn real quick with me to Second Kings, chapter 19, verse 32, this is God's response. God's response is to tell, is to give King Hezekiah, King of Judah, a promise. Okay? If you guys could turn with me, 2 Kings 19, verse 32, so it could catch my breath. 2 Kings 19, verse 32. Mrs. Burton, would you be able to read that for me real quick so I could drink water? so much this is a promise from god that's pretty incredible okay that's pretty incredible amount of of a promise when you just to put this in record you know the Assyrian army for 100 years have not lost a single battle okay so here comes this thing where it, it becomes very clear you either trust in god or you just say look at man's eye and said just look at the trajectory of history we will not have this happen, okay? And notice after God's promise in verses 35 uh, to 36, you see what God does is God sent an angel to strike down the Assyrian army. I mean, let me just read this real quick. It says, Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out. I mean, a singular angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose in the early in the spring uh, morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, verse 36, king of Syria departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. Okay, which is pretty incredible. By the way, to put it in perspective in terms of armies, numbers and everything, 185,000 men is a lot of people. Okay, I don't think the city of Pasadena where I live is even at 200,000. Not yet. Okay. To put this in perspective, you guys know how many American troops, whether Army, Navy, and Marines, actually, and Air Force, were actually on the ground during the invasion of Iraq? I think it was about 120,000, okay? 120,000. So when you have 185,000, these are 185,000 that died. We're not talking about the whole entire army, which means there's more than that because there's some remnant who went back to Syria. This is a really big loss. Now, question, when an army lose that many, do you think they're going to write about it in a way they say we got defeated? What do you guys think? No, no okay? No. I like uh, the other day I was talking to somebody about history, about the Marines in Korea War. The way the Marines taught us about the Korean War is they make it a great story. We were surrounded, or the Marine Corps was surrounded. One Marine division was surrounded by 10 Chinese division. And the Marines, these great stories, these great quote about one of the Marines' most famous generals, a guy named Chesley Puller. He has like a shrapnel wound here so he looks like he's always smirking and smiling okay and he said that's good we're surrounded because you know why then we could just advance uh, on the opposite direction 
because no Marine would ever say retreat, right? No Marines would ever say re retreat. I still remember when I was in the Marines training, I was in a hill in a very not good spot. This is when I was a young corporal, like, you know, you're, you're in charge of four guys. And I didn't think clearly. And I remember the Sergeant Major and officer went and said, this is a very bad position because if you get shot at, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, we'll move backwards. And I remember all my underling was like, don't say it. And I was like, oh, I cannot believe I just said it. They're like, are you saying retreat? I was like, no, no, no. And I said the chesty puller thing. We'll just advance on the other position. And they're like, you don't have to do that by actually being in a much more stronger position. I said, yeah, I'm just dumb. And they're like, okay, yeah, we'll teach you what it is and that kind of thing, okay? I bring that up as to say is this. Fascinating enough, I'm bringing this up as to say that there's a new Chinese move that came out about how, you know, like the Chinese won and all these things, right? Um, which to me, I still think is incredible that the Marine Corps as a, a division survived. But at the same time, I'm trying to bring up a point is this. When people lose, people do not like to say they got defeated. True or not. So we have the Syrian records. The Syrian records did not say they uh, destroyed. Sennacherib actually has writing. But it's fascinating. I think it confirms it because he just says he surrounded Judah. Uh, he surrounded Jerusalem and made Hezekiah a songbird, a caged songbird. And he destroyed 30 cities nearby and he left. Which is also kind of strange because most of the record, if you ever read, they destroyed everything, right? It's like kill them all, wipe them all. And in this one, he just said, oh, I just surrounded them with a lot of troops and I went home. Which means there's something that happened. <laughs> Does that make sense? They didn't take over Jerusalem. And I think that suggests what happened is the biblical account was true, that there was a destruction. Because they don't bring an army out for show. Just like right now, the intel that with Russia, that a lot of people are saying, is they don't bring 100,000 troops near the border with all the logistics of feeding that many men with all that just to show posture, right? Um, so in the same way, I think what we see is the same kind of things. So going back on, if we could go back with me to verses 11. Uh, Nahum chapter 1, verse 11. Nahum chapter 1, verse 11. This is a historical instance that God is saying, Hey, Judah, you can't trust me. I have delivered you once. And remember, this is the context of an army that has never been defeated for over a hundred years. For a hundred years. And God, did he protect them when Hezekiah turned back to God? The answer is yes. The answer is what, guys? Yes, okay? So in light of this, then God makes three promises in verses 12 to 13. What are these promises? The first one is he promises it yet again what God will do to her enemy. And this kind of echoes what we already saw earlier in verses 9 and 10. But in verse 12, the first half, he repeats this theme again. The first promise to Judah is God will destroy her enemy. This is what it says. This is what the Lord says. Though they are full strength and so they are many, so also they will be cut off and pass away. Okay. In other words, what you see going on here. Um, what you see going on here is the strength of the enemies are mentioned. It's fascinating. It says, though they are full strength, and so they are many. So this is writing during a time when Assyria was strong. But it seems very impossible for God to say an army could be destroyed. Okay? A whole army could be destroyed. Um, that's almost like saying in 1930s, right? When you go out there and say, you know, the whole German army one day will be destroyed. Most people would say, no, by who? Well, there's a country that has a smaller army that doesn't even have a professional standing army of more than 100,000 called the United States and, you know, Russia or whatever else. It would, it would seem in, 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 inconceivable, okay? So here we see, what we see here is, um, I think very likely when this was written, it was actually between 663 to 727 B.C. 
or, or actually, uh, what I'm saying, 727 BC to 663. Why I say this is because this is a time period where Assyria was full strength. Remember what it says, though they are full in strength and there are many, okay? By the way, the word full strength, literally in Hebrew, is shalom, which means what? Peace. Like I said, Nineveh has not had faced any enemies in their city gates for over a hundred years, okay? And they've not lost a battle for over a hundred years. And yet God says, though He described their strength, notice what the next clause says, so also they will be cut off and pass away. God is saying He will destroy them, okay? By the way, there is a sense where we, this warning should be even for the United States. I do think the United States is strong militarily. We have the largest amount of aircraft carrier, unlike any country. The closest one, next with the aircraft carrier, um, is not even close, right? We have, I think, 12, which is technically supersized carriers, right? Um, the British finally made one, new one, but it's more like a helicopter landing deck. And we have so many of those to protect them, to help the Marines land on amphibious beaches, okay? But even as strong as we are, we're not that strong. I mean, if there's anything that we've learned from 1960 onwards, is the U.S. could lose many wars, okay? I'm bringing this up as to say that we need to be careful, not trusting in this. And yet God even gives this warning even to Syria. Kingdoms come and kingdom goes. God's second promise to Judah is this. There'll be no more affliction. And this is related to what? Assyria being destroyed. It says, verse 12b, Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. He makes this promise. This is not a promise that's going to be fulfilled necessarily right away. But God promised one day they will be a nation where they will be not afflicted anymore. Okay? Where they will be afflicted anymore. Let's go to the third promise is in verse 13. And that's the removal of shackles. Or if you want to write this, another way of writing it is God's third promise in verse 13 is removal of oppression. Okay? It says in verse 13, So now I will break his yoke from upon you, and I will tear your shackles to pieces. Yoke is a common metaphor for oppression, both in the Old Testament, and also um, the Syrians like to write about putting people under yoke. In fact, if you look at some of the uh, painting, they're literally tying people up in various things, putting hooks on people's mouths, that kind of thing. These people knew what it's like to shackle people, to put all kinds of strain, yoke and even literal shackles and fish hooks on people's, um, you know, lips or whatever. And other, I'm pretty sure other creative ways and throws and things of that nature. So here we see God promises the removal of oppression. I think this is an important message. Um, kind of like what I said last week. I think this message, some could read this and preach this against believers and say about Christian nationalism. But actually, think in the context, it's actually more appropriate to say this is for people that worship a power of government that is totally at war with God. Okay, again, when I say this, I'm not saying, okay, therefore we as must like spread Christian nationalism and you know, throughout state, but I'm saying this is actually more appropriately, according to its context, addressing towards those governments that feel they could have a right to war against God's people. This should be a comfort. Because I think people in government could be quite oppressive around the world, true or not. There's a lot of oppressive government. We're not, you know, it's nothing new. And also, if you, if we've been paying attention even the last few years, um, 
even in English-speaking world, English-speaking Western world, that is coming here also as well. You know, I don't want to make it too political, but even when you think about certain laws that's passed in Canada, where it's illegal to even quote Bible verse about certain sins, is considered a very serious hate crime. Okay, um, I think so goes different countries. The United States will follow these other progressive countries. You know, the days of even where there's no law of you being canceled for being a believer with certain view of kids, certain view of biblical view of gender, of family, uh, of even who's responsible for the kids, that's going to be constantly attacked. And here we see these promises, okay? Um, we need to remember that God can deliver, um, that God can destroy, and also God could also what? Um, uh, remove oppression. But the question is not... If, the question is when. And until that moment, the most important thing we need to pursue is to be faithful and to trust in His promise. Okay? So that's um, point number, the first address. Let's now go to the second address to uh, Judah. Okay? Second address is found in verses 15. Um, second address is found in verse 15. Why do I think this is also addressed to Judah? Is because in verse 15, when it says, Your... The pronoun your here, that's mentioned twice, you know, like celebrate your feasts, pay your vows. This, and then, you know, the wicked will pass, or no longer pass through you, that kind of thing. This you here, like I said, English is not clear, but in Hebrew, it's very clear. It changed from verses 14, the subject. Verse 14 is masculine singular, which I've argued last week is addressing the Syrian king. But now it's a feminine singular. And it's... Why do I think this is Judah's? Because Judah specifically mentioned, where it says, celebrate your feast, Judah. Judah's feminine singular also as well in, in the way it looks in Hebrew. So it matches this. And also this is Judah because it reinforced by the theme of what? Of, of celebration of God's what? Deliverance. So verses 15 here, the real focus is on the Judah, the need to celebrate. And I think there's something important to realize here. When God delivers, when God delivers, when God saves, when God rescues, whether physically, like for instance, an Exodus story, or whether with the story with the destruction of Assyria or the Assyrian Empire, or whether spiritually, when God saves us from our sin, you know, the goal is not just only that we're saved, but we're saved for a purpose. And that's to celebrate. But more than celebrate, the part of our celebration is we worship Him. Okay? Verse 15 is a call to worship for Judah. That's the application. If God destroys the wicked and also saves those who have trusted in Him, that's a cause for us that we are called to worship God. That is an important application. In verse 15, looking at this, notice the, did you guys notice the very first word is behold? Right? It's calling in, in Hebrew, is, um, it's calling the attention to say, hey, look. Pay attention. And it's telling us to look where? It says, on the mountains. Looking towards mountains. And Judas would have had their, their, what we would probably call hills. Okay? Technically hills. Um, even Jerusalem itself is on a mountain or, or um, a hill. Okay? I think technically because of um, geography, we consider certain things like 10,000 feet or more. Then it becomes, or, or 5,000 or something. I don't remember the exact... Um, Figure then we consider a mountain instead of hills. But here we see that God is saying, Behold on the mountains, 
when you pay attention to mountains, what are you going to see? The feet of him who bring good news. Okay? So notice the attention is to look abruptly to the mountain, but not just only the mountain. It calls them to say, there's going to be an announcement of good news when it says the feet of him who bring good news, who announces peace. Okay? So you see there's going to be an announcement of good news. And if you live in a day and age where you have were in Judah, could you imagine to put yourself in the sandals of a, someone in Judah in this time period? You live in a time of Hezekiah. You're trying to follow God, and suddenly a big invading army comes, which humanly speaking, you look and say, oh man, it's about to destroy things, right? By the way, even in this time period, um, last night I was looking at a certain documentary that was even about... Ukraine. Apparently, there's already people been killed already, because in this documentary I saw, there was a soldier that was shot by a Russian sniper, okay, um, that was killed, and it was talking about it was, the documentary basically went to the guy's family. They're grieving. They're burying him, and his fellow soldiers getting emotional. Then they went to the actual border area of hot zone where the person was killed, and those soldiers there was one of his sergeants was getting very emotional. I'm bringing it up to say is this. When I looked at that, I was like, wow, that's pretty scary to be in the eve of war with an army that is really huge. Okay. By the way, you guys know that in recent history, the biggest tank battle after World War II involving hundreds of tanks actually took place in 2013 in Ukraine, right? With, with, with the uh, Russians and Ukrainian. Uh, again, I'm not giving a national, I'm just giving perspective of saying when we think of those things, when I think of those things when I look at even the maps of where we were in the Marines before it's like wow that became a hot spot then war becomes the threat of war becomes more real if that makes sense in the same way put yourself in the sandals of someone in Judah the Syrian army wherever they went they've always won they've came before and it was comes close even with that survival like God's grace wiping out 185,000 of the Syrians in the back of your mind you always think the Syrians could come back at any time and, and bad things could happen. If it doesn't mean Jerusalem gets destroyed, A, the neighboring area, which affects supply chain, blah, 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 all that kind of thing. You can kind of picture this a little bit, maybe in 2020 onwards a little bit, okay? And here's an announcement. When you look up the hills, you'll be afraid, looking. It's like, is there going to be dust? Is there going to be clouds of dust of an army coming over? And notice he says, behold, look over there, the mountains. And then look beyond the mountains. You see, hey, there's a feat of someone who bring good news, a messenger, who announces peace. In Hebrew, the word peace, shalom, is more than just absence of war and conflict. It is also description of blessing, also as well. Usually messengers, feet, is it pretty? What do you guys think? No, walking all that place. If you're wearing what, Taliban Nikes, which is what, sandals, your feet is going to get all what, muddy and dirty, okay? So all that is to say, the feet could be so dirty, could be so beaten up, but you would say it's beautiful because why? It brings good news of peace. By the way, this passage is very similar to Isaiah 52, 7, right? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, which is quoted later in the New Testament. But here we see, this. then after saying there's going to be good news, then it calls us, there's a call to celebrate. There's imperative verbs, that is commands. Notice the command is this. Celebrate your feasts, Judah. Pay your vows. The Jews would have three different kinds of holidays of feasts, right? There's Passover. Um, the, you know, the, there's the fall feast. There's all these feasts. 
And God is saying, hey, you can celebrate. And not only celebrate, don't, but when it says celebrate your feast, it's all to worship God. Pay your vows is very clear, is language of worship towards God. And then the question might be, with the call of worship, why? What's the reason why we should worship God? Why should Judah worship God in this specific context? Notice it indicates a reason. In the next word after pay your vows, it gives the word for, which is indicating reason. It says, For never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is eliminated completely. This is not a promise that Judah would never have any enemies that would invade them. Certainly there will be, right? There'll be others, the Romans and others, okay? Um, the Ottoman Empire, um, the, even the British, okay? Uh, in World War I and afterward, okay? They were at one point under the British Empire. Or at least that Palestinian area, okay? But here we see when it says, For never again will the wicked pass through you. Is to say, hey, God made a promise. Assyria and Nineveh will be no more. They will never march to your area again. You don't have to live in fear looking at the mountains, wondering the clouds of a huge army is coming because God will totally, completely destroy them, which details of which we will see um, the following weeks as we go on with Nahum. Okay? But I want to end with this note. I want to end with the gospel. Remember how it says, the feet of him who bring good news? This theme will be picked up in Isaiah 52 verse 7 and of course in the New Testament. I want to preach a sermon sometime and I want to title it how to make how to have beautiful feet. Feet that God would actually approve. And what is that? That's to share the good news. To share the good news would also come with bad news, right? Either you will be destroyed or whether if you don't repent and you continue sin against a holy magnificent God or you'll be saved if you trust in him. And He saves you because not of fairness, not of equality, because of surely of His grace and mercy. And I think we have that choice today. And if we are saved, this is the greatest news we should bring to all. To see the greatest joy of all earth in the midst of everything we do, trying to survive life, raise a family, you know, finish school, um, try to advance in career, trying to have a career. All these things, don't forget your greatest purpose. Do not forget, neglect the role to serve God in the midst of this, to share the gospel also as well in the midst of living through life. Okay, let me stop at this point. Any 